Thank you for listening to our Celebration Sermon Podcast. Celebration is a worshiping community within Heart of White Ministries. We gather at 9 a.m. in the Red Brick Church Building on the Heart of White Campus on the corner of 160th and Lakewood in Holland, Michigan. We invite you to join us in person when you are able. To learn more about our Celebration community in Heart of White Ministries, please visit heartofwhite.com. We're in a year-long sermon series with three parts. This first part, think like Jesus. And each week we're going to look at a different core truth of biblical uh, faith. Core truths, how to think, how to be shaped. I was reminded in praying for this week's service of Paul's exhortation in Romans 12:2: Do not conform to the pattern of this world. Don't let the world shape the things you love and invest in. Don't be conformed. Instead, be transformed. And the word there in the Greek, metamorpho, be metamorphosized. Don't let the the world make you a caterpillar. Let the Holy Spirit make you a butterfly. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's that learning to think like Jesus And then you'll be able to discern what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. We're looking, our key truth is the nature of authority and the Bible this morning. And of all the different passages that were in the book, Believe, again, we're kind of following the scriptures outlined in this particular book uh, through the course of the year. I've chosen one of the last ones written in all of the Bible. It's from the letter of 2 Timothy, uh, Paul's letter to his disciple and friend. And it's Paul looking back across everything else that's been written and happened. And he looks with the wisdom of hindsight right at the end of his ministry. So listen and hear the wisdom. Uh, I'll start at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. Out of respect and appreciation for God's word, our habit has become, let's stand together as you're able. And listen, I will read. This is Paul writing to Timothy, and he says this, But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, holy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, but treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. All of this summarized in this, having a form of godliness, but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. Pick up again in verse 10. You, however, that is by contrast, Timothy, you know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, my faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions and sufferings. What kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra? The persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving as well as being deceived. But as for you, Timothy and through Timothy to us, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, 
and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That's how salvation comes. Finally, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have a seat, if you would, please, and we'll pray. Oh, Lord, our God and Father, we thank you for the wisdom of a man like Paul, deeply schooled as a Pharisee in the Old Testament scriptures, met by you on the road to Damascus, having to reintegrate his entire life, and then over the course of years being a part of the world Christian movement at its origins, planting churches cross-culturally, discipling people, seeing the church of God birthed throughout new parts of the world, and that at one stage of his life he would look back and look through all the scripture to the very beginning and share this insight with his good friend, missionary companion, Timothy. He would say all scripture is God breathed. Thank you that as he wrote that, you carefully superintended his writing and then as those texts were preserved and passed down, as we've learned uh, in Corey's class so miraculously and amazingly, So now we can open them up, translate, study, consider, pray. And you've made a promise in the midst of all that to meet us and to speak with us. Holy Spirit, continue that work. Now illumine our hearts and minds. Guard your people from my own confusion and brokenness, but make Jesus clear and compelling and attractive. Thank you for the hope of the gospel. Fill us with that hope and guide us this day, for we pray in Jesus' mighty name and all of God's people said together, amen and amen. Well, if you've ever studied philosophy in college, a good philosophy 101 class, you'll know that one of the key questions for all of life is how do you know what you know? How do you know that what you know is what you know and not what you shouldn't know or don't know or won't help? by knowing. How do you know what you know? That's of particular importance to us because what we're looking to know, God, is very big and we, particularly by comparison, are very small. It's easy to miss the mark when your subject is big and your capability is small. It's easy to get something wrong. There are even complicating factors for us in this, our own sin. Our own brokenness affects what we see or how we understand it. You know, I'm always willing to consider other people's behaviors, but I want to be considered for my own motivations. I didn't mean it, but they did what they did. You see, that's the working out of our own brokenness. It confuses what we know. Well, because of all that, two things we need to keep in mind, particularly today. The first is this, humility. Because truth is big and we are small, we need to be humble as we learn and go forward. Humble so that we realize all that we know or think we know may yet need to be re-aimed a bit, 
re-clarified, reset. So humility is key to learning. And that's true in both theology, knowledge of God, and in science. I'm very thankful for doctors. They had a marvelous intervention for my mother just this week. I'm very pro-medicine. Yet I'm also aware that if you look through the history of psychology and of medicine, there's some things that used to be done that we won't do anymore. That's because we've learned and you need to have the humility to really learn and go deep. The next thing that's very important is there's a humility of little me, big knowledge, but there's also an inquisitiveness. Oh yeah, I may not be able to figure it all out, but I wanna know something about this. I wanna get a little bit of it. One of the things I've loved through the course of my life is to see where people work. Because I've learned as Proverbs says, that see someone who has good at what they do and you'll watch them with fruitfulness, eventually uh, serving before kings. I love to watch people who are good at what they do. I remember a friend, Jack Houghton. I was talking with him as he was laying brick. He'd spent his whole career as a bricklayer. And we were just talking and he was putting bricks up there. And he said, oh, Pastor Bill, you're so interested. Why don't you put some bricks down? It wasn't until I tried to lay one course of bricks that I realized how really great my friend Jack was. He could do it without a second thought. You see, but I had to have an inquisitiveness to observe and see. It was wonderful. So this desire to look, ask, listen, and learn. Now, there's the problem of knowing what you know. Here's the good news that'll lead us to these next steps. Take a field that's bigger than you. I'm gonna choose chemistry, because that's much bigger than me. I don't know everything about chemistry, but if I worked, I could know a little more than I do. Well, God, that's a big field too, but you know one of the differences between the knowledge of chemistry and the knowledge of God? God himself wants to teach me. Chemistry just sits there and says, I dare you to see if you can learn. God says, I know you're fearful, I know you're broken, I know you're confused, but I'm gonna make myself known to you. In Jeremiah, it says, if you seek me, you will find me. If you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you. If we'll seek, he'll make himself known. That's a promise. It's not because we're so smart to go to the right schools. It's because the object of our knowledge and pursuit wants to make himself known. I want to give you what for me has been a good working metaphor of how God makes himself known and known specifically in the words of the Bible. That's where we can go to learn about God in an authoritative and good way. The way I want to do this is introduce you to the National Churchill Library and Center. I think in the 20th century, you know my interest in history, I think one of the most fascinating personalities of the 20th century was British Prime Minister Winston Churchill. Through the course of his life, a turn of a phrase, a man in the moment, his ups and his downs. I have in my library a set of books. This is the first of seven. His history of the Second World War. This one is The Gathering Storm, where he lays out all the things that began to 
set the dominoes in place for the coming of World War II. Well, apparently, George Washington University in Washington, D.C. has a library and a museum open to the public, and it's dedicated to the life and work of former British Prime Minister Winston Churchill. It's got this book and more. It's got copies of his papers and his speeches, uh, references to him and all that he did. It is the best place in the United States to go for important information about Winston Churchill. Better there than any other place. But I want to tell you something. We also have a promise if we think of the Bible as the library of the Lord. We have the opportunity. Imagine if I were to tell you, you get to meet Winston Churchill himself. Would the papers of the, and the books of the library be helpful in knowing about him? Yes. But how much more if you could actually get to know him? Imagine looking at those books and those papers, reading those speeches, is if he were there with you to say, gosh, I remember what it was like to speak to the radio. I have nothing to offer you but blood, toil, tears, and sweat in that moment. Imagine if you had not only had information about, but you had him. Friends, I want to tell you, this kind of functions as the way that we meet God and the promises we have in the Bible. I want to tell you that the Bible is a library of the Lord. Just as the Churchill Center is a great place for information about Winston Churchill, so the Bible is the key book for understanding and gathering information about God. Now, the CRC's own Belgic Confession has a marvelous picture that fits right in with this. It speaks of how do you know God? Well, two ways. One is the book, there's the library idea, of nature, and the other is the book of Scripture. Two sources for knowing God, and indeed, it's the book of Scripture that helps clarify and understand the world that we see. I see that it's a beautiful day with a blue sky, but the Scripture helps me see this blue sky as the extension of a God who loves me and gave me life. I can look at nature and find out what, but it's in the Scripture that I begin to see why. John Calvin, in the very first chapter of the Institutes, refers to Scripture with this um, metaphor. He says, they're like spectacles that bring into clear focus the world around us so we can better understand it. It's marvelous. Think of the Bible as the library of the Lord. There's multiple authors, uh, over 40 different authors from three different continents, writing in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Altogether, this library contains 66 books. Um, altogether, there's a variety of genres, history, you know about the history of Israel, the history and happenings of the life of Jesus in the early church. There's poetry, you see that in the Psalms. There's a love song. Sometimes that love song, they only uh, save for married people, imagine, in the library of the Lord. That's important to him. There's science fiction. Oh, we call it apocalyptic when we go to seminary. But you've read some of those passages in Revelation at the end of Daniel, and you're just going, whoa. 
There's different genres. And it was written across multiple years, almost 1,500 years. And so rather than thinking of the Bible as one book, I encourage you to think of it as a library of books. But they're a library of books centered around a key character. And that character is named Jesus. From Genesis to Revelation, these books are given to us. They've been preserved across centuries. We can trust that. It's a reliable um, passing down. I've been fascinated to hear Corey talk about the recent archaeological discoveries that really communicate to us in great ways how trustworthy these texts are for our knowing. But we need to realize all of these books point to one key character, and it's not me. It's not you. It's Jesus. He is the central character. There are parts that will give me insight for life. But the thing I need to understand most is that the central character of everything you read there is Jesus. If you read the Bible to simply learn what you should do with life, you'll miss the key point. If you learn the Bible to simply guide your behaviors, you will miss the reason God has preserved it and brought it to us. This is why I wanted this text this morning. As Paul looks back across 66 books, because by the end of Paul's life, they were beginning to come into shape just like that. As he looks back to Genesis, the word he uses to describe them, his hindsight view, is God breathed. Yes, God brings breath. Paul wrote this to his friend Timothy in about 65 AD. He was at the end of his life, and now he's looking back across all of this. He looks over it, and that's the term that strikes him, God breathed. There are words there, but life itself in those words comes from the very breath of God himself. It harkens back to the book of Generation. Uh, Genesis, where God creates humanity, Adam. Adam is created, and God breathes life into him. There was more than simply the assembly of dust, the chemistry portion of who we were. There needed to be something more for real life, and that was the breath of God. Paul is looking back, and he thinks of God's word creating. Genesis 1, 3, and God said, let there be light. There's something powerful and creative about God's word. He'd seen God's words spoken. In Exodus 3, we read of God speaking with Moses. And that's key to the forming of Israel as a nation. But from Abram all the way through to the prophets, God speaks, and often his words are written. As in Jeremiah, um, we'll read this. God says to Jeremiah, take a scroll and write on it all the words I have spoken to you. So the words have their source in God, and the prophets are a means by which God speaks and commits to writing. But they all point to the most important expression of the word, and that's God's word in a body. If the Bible is God's word in writing, Jesus, the man, fully divine, fully human, 
is God's word, the creative, the spoken, God's word in a body. John the Apostle in John 1.14 says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Friends, there's a connection between the word written and the word incarnate. God breathed. So in the written word of God, we meet not only the person who speaks, but we meet him in person. And this is spoken over and over again through the scriptures, uh, whether it's Luke 24, whether it's John 5, whether it's the way the people replied and observed God's word. This is understood that here in these writings, God himself has breathed in a way that he makes himself known. I love the... Um, passage in Luke 24. If you'll read, and I have the wrong reference uh, here, it should be Luke 24 and 27 as the key. But the whole passage from verse 13 to 27 is the story of two disciples on the afternoon of the first Easter day. They've heard that the tomb where Jesus' dead body had been laid was found empty. But still discouraged, they leave and are walking towards the village of Emmaus. Someone joins them. Perhaps you've heard this story. He spends hours, they'll say later, unfolding the scripture to us. They then have communion and their eyes are opened. Notice that eyes are open. But verse 27, here's the key verse that I want you to see and look at. They say that, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that includes Leviticus, that includes numbers. Yes, that's Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea and Amos and all that was written. It says that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, that is Jesus, explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Jesus is the one who says, you don't understand the Old Testament until you see how it points to me. If you read the Old Testament for history or for poetry or for law for life, you may benefit, but you'll miss its point. I want to try and press that home real quickly, if I might, by taking a particular Old Testament scripture that many times folks would pass over and not realize. I want to see you how in my reading and prayer, it begins to connect with the scripture. It has to do with this important life issue for all of us called moving the boundary marker. Huh? If you'll read Deuteronomy 9.14, it says, do not move your neighbor's boundary stone set up by your predecessors in the inheritance you receive in the land of the Lord, your God is giving you to possess. Do not move the boundary marker. What has that got to do with anything for my life, much less the gospel? Well, a little study, Proverbs 23.10 says, do not move an ancient boundary stone or encroach on the fields of the fatherless. Don't move the boundary stone, particularly at the cost of other people. Hosea 5.10, I love the minor prophets. Where I grew up in the suburbs, we love to teach John and Romans. 
When I moved into the inner city, I discovered that most of the pastors there had been deeply schooled in the minor prophets. Listen to Hosea. Judah's leaders are like those who move boundary stones. I will pour out my wrath on them like a flood of water. Ooh, whatever's going on with these boundary stones, imagine I'm back in New Orleans and Hurricane Katrina, instead of being a flood, is a flood of God's justified anger at the movement of the boundary stones. What's going on with this? Well, I want to tell you something, friends. What we've got to first ask is, what are the boundary stones and how do you get there? And let's go back to the beginning. This won't be on the test. You won't be graded. That was always the best way to get my students in college to listen. Oh, it's not on the test. Just follow. Let's go back to Genesis 12, where God himself seeks out and calls Abram to himself. A gracious call, not because Abraham is better than anybody else, but because God wants to show his grace and his love. That's what we learn in the call of Abraham. It begins with grace. Now, Abraham responds to God's grace with faith, and it says in Genesis 15, 6, that responding in faith to the grace of God was credited to Abram as righteousness. Well, in the course of that relationship, grace met by faith, in the course of that crediting of righteousness, there come promises. I'll give you children, a nation of descendants, Genesis 15:4. I'll give you a land of your own, Genesis 15:17. Abram will be renamed, he'll be transformed, he'll become Abraham. God gives a sign of covenant relationship that's circumcision and outward expression. Now, over time, those promises become reality. It took centuries. God provides for Israel. They relocate to Egypt in the midst of famine. You remember that part of the story? Joseph in the end of Genesis. God redeems the nation of Israel from what would be slavery in Egypt. That's the book of Exodus. God leads and provides Israel across the sea and through the desert into the new land. And in that land, God directs the dividing and apportioning to all the people of Israel, each their own plot, each their own expression of belonging. All of this takes multiple centuries from the call of Abram by grace, his response by faith, God's promises, those promises worked out. And so this boundary marker stands to remind the everyday life of those people, of the centuries of God at work to give them all they had. You don't move that boundary marker because that's a reminder of a God who works to fulfill his promises, offered in grace, received by faith, established over time through deliverance and provision and care and leading. Even when we fall short, you don't mess with those boundary markers. Particularly for those who lack the power, the fatherless. And if you change the markers of all that God has given, there will be consequences. Now, friends, I want to tell you that I do believe there's a historical consequence for these boundary markers. And you need to sense the context and all that. I, I'm solid with that, committed to it. 
But that historical context and application is just not everything. Yes, you could read that and say, oh, God affirms the rule of law. Oh, it's important to have established private property rights and property rights that are recognized and enforced by the government. That's all good. Any country that recognizes all of that will benefit. But wait, is what the Holy Spirit is saying. There's more. All those things are there to point to Jesus and his gospel. There is a historical context and application, but the gospel message calls us to see a God who is, takes a move of grace, responded by faith, gives us promises, live those out, don't change them. Friends, I want to tell you, I, by the grace of God, never want to move the boundary marker of God's truth, who Jesus is, what he's done for me at the cross the hope he's given me. I don't want to move the boundary marker of grace by my own self-righteousness. I don't want to cover up the message of the cross, change that boundary marker, do that for my own self-expression. I don't want to replace the calling to surrender to the living God and replace it with my self-defined identity. I don't want to move the boundary marker, replacing God-centered mission with self-centered consumerism. No. Don't mess with the boundary marker. That's how this Old Testament speaks to the work and promises of God. They're fulfilled in Jesus, who is himself the presentation of the gospel. He is the one teaching us in his written word by his Holy Spirit. He is the one we meet. So I want to invite you to meet up in the library because what you meet in this library that we call the Bible will be Jesus. Yes, there are books in the library. Yes, you can gather information. But guess what? By the outpouring of his Holy Spirit, he wants to meet us. We can meet him in the library because he is alive. The tomb was empty. That's significant. He is no longer dead. He is present. He's made that promise by God the Spirit. Just as we meet him in the sacrament with the Lord's table, we'll do that next week. So as we read and listen, he meets us in his written word. That God is seeking us. Friends, chemistry is out there to be learned. But Jesus, but the knowledge of God, if you'll start, he'll meet and make himself known. He is seeking you. And finally here, he is inviting each of us into not simply more knowledge about God, but a living relationship as he guides and leads and empowers. I'm so thankful for this faith that has been handed down once and for all to the saints. I believe it's the faith of the church across centuries. I'm a particular portion of that faith, Protestants. I'm here in the United States. And I just wanna close by reading some things that kind of ground us in how important this has been for centuries. We consider the uh, nailing of 95 Theses by Martin Luther to be kind of the, the kickoff of the Reformation, 1517. That's the first generation. About 50 years later, the Heidelberg Catechism and the Belgic Confession were written to kind of express and ponder with biblical references, dig in this truth of what it means to follow God. But my favorite, frankly, is the one I've been 
trained in, the Westminster Confession, about 130 years after the beginning of the Reformation. It's now about three or four generations of reflecting on biblical faith. And I've made available in Celebration Inform this week. You can click and download the first chapter from that. Let me read you just a few lines that remind us of why the library of the Bible, the library of the Lord, is the place uh, we meet Jesus. Paragraph four, this authority does not depend on the testimony of any man or church, but completely on God, its author. When I was a college student and first began to have people in authority teach me to question the message of the Bible, I thought I could put together human arguments that would overcome their human arguments. I would eventually learn that even with the best of those human arguments, you couldn't argue someone out of that. But the Holy Spirit could draw people to recognize that authority. The human arguments I learned were very supportive. This is what Corey's doing with us on Wednesday night. Once you realize how abundant, uniquely abundant, our understanding and security in that text is, you'd have to say, wow, something's up. So there's answers to questions, but it's the Holy Spirit who brings the knowledge. Like Corey says on Wednesday, the majestic style, carefully, amazingly, beyond all odds preserved, brings us to another thing. This is five in the Westminster Confession. We are completely persuaded and assured of the infallible truth and divine authority of the Bible only by the inward working of the Holy Spirit. That it's the Spirit who begins to help us not only read and understand, but read and see what it's pointing to. And finally, verse 10, or paragraph 10, the Holy Spirit speaking in the Bible is the supreme judge of all religious controversies, all decisions of religious councils, all the opinions of ancient writers, all human teachings and every private opinion. You know, you can look at the history of the church and people make mistakes. I've tried to be open about my own shortcomings. I'm anxious to read a book by John Dixon called Bullies and Saints, An Honest History of the Church. And he skims the history of the church. And you know, there are some really good folks. And there are some other, shall we call them cousins? We would just as soon keep in the basement. The history of people is broken, ups and downs. But it's not because of those people that we have a confidence in the Scripture to meet God. It's in spite of them. It's because God is the one who wants to make himself known to you. And he said, I'll meet you there. Go to the library. But meet the one who stands at the center of the library the one about whom everything is written and points to, the one through whom we can see and understand even the confusing parts of the rest. It's through Jesus, and he invites you to come meet him in his library. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you've loved us deeply, and thank you that you've done far more than simply leave us historical records
but that you've said even in these human historical records transmitted by people needing to be translated, that in all of this, you by your grace will meet us. And so we ask, Father, that you meet us. Thank you that there is no question uh, that you are offended by, that each wondering and question becomes an opportunity to see in a new way by faith in response to your grace. I do pray that you'd give us a humility and inquisitiveness to ask, what could this mean? How do I understand that? What's going on there? But more than anything, we don't simply want to meet the book about you, be masters at Bible trivia, but we want to meet you in your library, that you would lead us and guide us. Be with us, Father. Thank you that this yearning to know you is deep within each of us, that this promise that you'll meet us in these human written texts uh, has gone on for centuries. Speak to us now as we hear your word song from Psalm 119. Lord, your word is a lamp unto our feet and it leads us, not to our own designs, but it leads us to your throne of grace. We thank you for your goodness and kindness and pray in Jesus' name. All of God's people whispered together, amen and amen. Thank you for listening. To learn how to get involved in our celebration community or how to support Hardawike Ministries, please visit us at hardawike.com.